0: Asymmetrical Haircuts Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg.
1: All right.
2: Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. <laughs> well, Steph, we've got an enormous amount to get through today. Uh, there's a lot that's happened around the International Criminal Court that we haven't uh, reported on yet. So we thought it would be a good idea to try and round things up and get the inestimable help of Astrid Reisinger Corosini. Astrid, are you there? Yes, I'm there.
0: Hello, good morning morning. And Astrid teaches international criminal law at the University of Vienna and she's also the director of the Salzburg Law School where she ran a very prestigious summer school and she is a long-time observer of the ICC and all courts and we have her here for our ICC Omni Shambles recording which already started in an Omni Shambles with Janet spilling coffee everywhere so in the we're in the right mood for the kind of talk we're going to have.
2: We definitely are. Um, we thought we'd uh, start off with the Independent Expert Review and uh, end up with what's happening with the uh, sanctions that the United States has put against members of the Office of the Prosecutor and skip and jump in the middle through the elections of the judges and the election of a new prosecutor.
0: So starting with the independent expert review, uh, it's set in motion at last year's annual meeting of the state parties, the Assembly of State Parties. It's led by Richard Goldson from South Africa, former prosecutor at the Rwanda and Yugoslavia tribunals. It's packed full of heavyweights, uh, people who know the courts, experts who've been looking at it for a long time, and they are uh, looked at all aspects of the court, the prosecution, the judges, the chambers, the trust fund for victims, management overall, and it looks like they talk to everyone, all levels of staff and lots of NGOs.
2: And uh, what they came up with, their incredibly long report, was in fact a bit of a bombshell. It's uh, extraordinarily forthright about what ails the court. Apart from the analysis of how the court should work and isn't working, some of the strongest stuff is about the culture of the ICC. Um, they used words like bullying and said that the ICC's own leadership have maybe created a climate of extreme fear. I actually uh, asked Richard Goldstone if he'd like to say a bit more, but he simply said no, the experts stood by their Report and that, quote, I am confident that the ASP and the courts will give the give it their full consideration.
0: And so to get some more dish on this, we called up Douglas Guilfoyle, associate professor at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. He was at the ASP when they made the uh, when they established the Independent Experts Committee. And we spent some time chatting there about what to expect from this report. And now that it's finally come out, we asked him what he made of it.
3: Theirs is, I thought, an incredibly surprisingly frank and very fine-grained analysis across an enormous sweep of the courts, procedures, structure, working. It's um, it's a very impressive piece of work um, and just covers so much ground.
2: What What was the biggest surprise for you?
3: They plainly spoke with a lot of people at every level of the organisation. And then you just have, you know, these very pithy statements like the court appears to suffer internally from distrust and a culture of fear in in the world in which we operate it's rare to find uh you know an independent report that's publicly available unredacted to the general international community that's that frank and it's conducted on behalf of governments and not say by an ngo
0: um i was wondering i had the same thing as you were i was really surprised that the language was quite harsh and apart from what they call harassment and bullying, there's also quotes in there about predatory behaviour. How did you perceive that? Did it come as a surprise?
3: It didn't come as a surprise per se. Uh, I mean, you know, there have been allegations about particular members of the court in the past that have been aired publicly. So there's that. But there's also the fact that you know the legal profession in general is known as a hotbed of bullying and sexual harassment and we've just had report after report after report internationally and nationally from all sorts of bar associations everywhere it seems that sort of say the same much the same thing and what varies unfortunately simply the level of intensity it would seem rather than the occurrence so at one level it would almost be a surprise if the report hadn't found something like this it's incredibly disappointing that in an organisation devoted to the kind of ideals that the ICC is that one should find it. But stepping back and kind of just looking at the broader picture, well, you know, it's a its a legal organisation like others. And this appears to be an endemic problem for the legal profession internationally.
2: I expect we'll talk about this um, point again when we talk about the prosecutor's election. But uh, first, let's get your views, Astrid. Um, it's a long report. Have you actually read it? And if you have, what struck you?
1: <laughs> yes, actually, I went through it. I Probably I didn't read every little detail, but um, I have uh, quite an idea of what's in there. So yes, indeed, it's very long, 348 pages, formulating 384 recommendations. I must agree, I was also surprised, pleasantly, I should say, by the thoroughness um, of the expert review um, of the topics covered in the report, um, and most importantly, of its clear language. I wouldn't say In some cases, that it's a harsh language. I think that in some cases they report harsh truth, uncomfortable truth, but in a very clear uh, and direct way. I mean, they talk about bullying and harassment in the same way that they talk about uh, improving internal structures of the court. I think in particular with the more sensitive issues, um, many of uh, those were already around, in and around The Hague for quite some time. But it adds, of course, quite a layer of seriousness um, when you read about them black and white in such an independent report.
0: So your sense is that you've kind of heard these stories of maybe bullying and, and, and the management, but this is the first time that they've
1: actually are written down black and white? Exactly, with, and uh, in particular with such an authority.
2: Can you see, I mean, this huge, long list of recommendations, some of which are really about some of the fundamental issues of the court, how it's really organized. Can you see the states really kind of grasping the nettle and actually putting these recommendations into practice?
1: Yes, why not? Um, I mean, first of all, the recommendations go to very to various actors, to states, um, to the court, to specific organs of the court, to, to the assembly um, as as a whole. I think all of them are highly recommended to take the report serious, and I do think that this is being done. I mean, uh, from the side of the court, we have heard um, a rather short statement, but um, it was clear that the organs of the court are taking um, the recommendations seriously. Um, It was interesting to know that they are that some of the recommendations were already in the process of being discussed at the court, so also structurally um, there is not so much new that comes um, in the report, because it's clear that um, certain procedures need um, a revision. The registrar also said that some of the recommendations are new and that they will have a look at it, but certainly we want to uh, see more than just having a look at it and discussing those recommendations, but also we want to see implementation or maybe a reasoned, Non implementation, um, as the case may be. I wanted to ask one thing: with
0: these many recommendations and and the kind of comments we've seen from the court, it seems to be that they're all kind of saying, yes, some of the implementation, but mostly for the other, uh, you know, the other organs. So whatever is about them, they tend to kind of. At least what I heard about on background, they seem like they don't feel so strong to, uh, uh, to change that. But what they say about other people, that should really be changed. Is there not a risk of cherry picking uh, and that everybody just chooses the little things that they think uh, should change and then that fundamentally not a lot will change because everybody will just pick and choose from these very, very many recommendations and then they can still say that they're looking at the report. They just don't do everything.
1: I think what is really needed is uh, that the Assembly of States parties, and I would expect uh, this to happen already at at the upcoming Assembly um, uh, in December, um, that there will be some kind of mechanism um, how to deal with the recommendations, how the discussion is being structured, how the input of uh, different organs and stakeholders will be um, or should be, and that there's also a time frame that is being envisaged and also um, some kind of follow-up of what has happened with those recommendations.
2: Looking ahead also to the Assembly of States parties, we have uh, an election of the judges there. And part of the expert review was very critical about how political the election of judges are to the ICC at the moment. Maybe that's why sometimes they haven't got the best candidates, and also how badly the new judges are actually onboarded onto the court. Uh, This year at the... ASP, six new judges will be elected, won't they, Stephanie?
0: Yeah, and that means about a third of the total bench because there's 18. So they're going to be renewed. It's a great opportunity to get the best candidates. And there's been a big push from civil society that countries should just not put forward somebody's great uncle or somebody with a lot of ties, but people who are actually uh, have the background and the ability to be judges at the ICC.
2: We've asked a couple of candidates whether they'd like to come on to the show and to tell us about their candidacy. We haven't had any takers yet, but I was watching the candidate from Greece, uh, Victor Tsilonus, who was chatting online to Adedeji Hussein, better known as Tox. He's a young lawyer at the beginning of his career in international criminal justice, and I asked Tox what he was expecting from this crop of candidates.
4: Whoever is going to be on the bench for the ICC, they have. An interesting task of trying to ensure that the court remains relevant, but also they have to be alive to the need for reform. I don't think anybody would be in disagreement with the fact that the court is in need of reforms. We see that there are attacks from several angles, but how it you know withstands these attacks depends really on the calibre of people who will win the elections. So. This year, the advisory committee has issued its, its evaluation of candidates. And there are quite a few who have been regarded as highly qualified. Uh, for example, Dr. Chilonis as well. So I think that's certainly a good sign. And, and I think going forward, one way to ensure that there's credibility in the process is to make sure that everybody who is there uh, are, in fact, at least qualified or highly qualified. And that means in practical steps, A, you have to be actually a lawyer as opposed to a diplomat or somebody in a political position. And you have to know the stuff, you have to know about international criminal law, you have to know about procedure, you have to know about what makes the ICC and other institutions tick. The need for reform is undeniable in every quarter. And I think one way to do that is to really mentor potential um, judges from the start. So start perhaps with with paid internships and you might see a, a difference.
0: As Tox mentioned there, there's an advisory committee, and what they've said is that 10 of the 20 candidates are qualified, but the list system with judges being considered separately according to the different kinds of legal systems they come from and the different work experience is complicated, as Janet suggested to Oviso Oviso of the University of Luxembourg.
2: Does anybody actually understand how the system of electing the judges works?
0: Now, that's an interesting
5: question. I do not think anyone actually understands the, the system. I don't, I don't even think the committee itself understands the system. And if the committee itself does not quite understand the process, in my opinion, then it's actually quite difficult for anybody outside that system to actually understand how the system works. It's as opaque as they can. So there's still a lot of, you know, a lot of work to be done on having a system that not only works, but a system that is also understood by the majority of people who actually have to engage with it.
2: The majority of people who have to engage with it are, in fact, states' parties. They're the ones who elect the judges. Why would you assume that somehow the ICC is going to be different from the way that states normally work?
5: Well, I'm not very optimistic about the system of election of judges at the ICC being any different from the way states do it in any other international organization. The reason why states uh, establish the advisory committee and purport, the reason why the ASP purports to have these other different processes, different from other international organizations, it's pretty performative, if you ask me. They want to appear as if they are aspiring to openness and transparency and every other thing, while in actual sense, I do not believe that's what they're after. The dysfunction in the system itself It appears to be a dysfunction to us outsiders but to states it works pretty well.
2: There are 20 candidates um, for a number of uh, judgeships, what do you think? We got a good crop this year or not?
5: Well compared to previous elections I think we do have a good crop, I mean better than before and for the first time I haven't seen any okay there are diplomats but all of them have a legal background so this is I think maybe the first time we have people who are actually lawyers so it's a Compared to previous elections, you know, it's a better crop of candidates.
2: The ASP's advisory committee has put their report together about uh, the these judge candidates and rated them, um, you know, whether they're very suitable or only a bit suitable. And they seem to have placed a very harsh or very high emphasis on those who actually really know the details, ins and outs of the Rome Statute, to probably be able to quote chapter and verse, you know, what applies where. Um, And some people have said, well, you know, that's the kind of thing that you can get on top of very quickly. So how did you assess the assessors?
5: I'm one of those who actually believe that the, the committee exceeded its legal authority. Because if you look at the formal, the formal criteria in Article 36, paragraph 3a, for instance, it requires the candidates to have competence in criminal law and procedure and experience in that regard. The Rome Statute does not provide anywhere in any of its provisions that you must have specific knowledge of the International Criminal Court. But then this particular emphasis on the ICC's procedure and law itself resulted in grading other candidates lower than they should have been. I, well, they were actually otherwise very qualified candidates in my opinion.
2: So Astrid, time to ask you what uh, your assessment is of uh, this this group of, of judges. Um, have you been lobbied directly? Is anybody talking to you about who should be one of the judges?
1: No, unfortunately not. I must be not uh, important enough and have nothing to offer as a trade deal. Well, let me maybe start with the advisory committee. I was quite satisfied uh, with the report of the advisory um, committee. I'm very comfortable that they understand the election system. And I think if you have a look at the Rome study, it's also not such a mystery. Certainly, it might be cumbersome um, in uh, some instances because we have minimum requirements for um, uh, geographical representation, gender representation, the two lists. And I must say this is getting more unpopular um, um, of an opinion, but I still am a very um, huge supporter of List B candidates uh, because I believe that the court does require international law expertise.
2: List B candidates, they're the ones who aren't necessarily um, practicing in courts, but they understand the broader field of international law. Is, um, am I summarizing that correctly?
1: Yes, exactly. So list A are those with uh, criminal law expertise and list B are, are those with an uh, international law, in particular international humanitarian law um, expertise.
2: So would you actually agree with Oiso's critique that this advisory committee um, has been a bit too harsh on the, on the candidates um, and suggested some don't have knowledge of the ICC that, that they, they should have? Or do you think the, the committee has done its job well?
1: Of course, I don't know how the interviews were and, and and what the answers of the candidates were, but as for the point as such of asking of knowledge of international criminal law or of the Rome Statute systems, I'm rather in favor. I mean, it's twenty almost twenty years that we have judges now, and there were very often complaints that judges were not fully aware of the legal framework of the court. So I rather find it a positive maneuver of the committee to add uh, that question.
0: And can states, do you think, actually remove political interest in nominating judges? Is it realistic? Because when we talked to Uiso, he said, well, you know, if they wanted to change the system, they would have done so. The fact that it's still the same system, even though we complain about it every year or we, there's criticism of it, means that it's beneficial for them to keep it.
1: I don't know. Changing the Rome Statute um, is quite an undertaking. It would need um, two-thirds majority to uh, adopt uh, amendments, and in that case a seven-eight majority of states parties that have actually ratify, ratified an amendment to enter into force. So it's not that you can easily change the system. And I also wonder whether the preconditions that are set out in the Rome Statute really require amendment. I mean, what are we criticizing? We are criticizing that potentially states do not um, nominate candidates um, that are fully equipped or fully up to the job. And we criticize that maybe some states may vote for candidates such candidates that are not fully equipped. And I think what can be done, I mean, we can never fully exclude trades and uh, the so-called horse trading that is happening um, behind closed doors. But what we can do, and I think that is already being done, is um, that we shame states into nominating qualified persons. Because a campaign for a state, uh, to have somebody run for an office, it's quite um, resource-intensive. States do have an interest uh, that their candidates succeed, um, so they also should, and if they don't have it yet, build up this interest of really looking for highly qualified candidates. And then we also shame on the other side states into not agreeing to deals for candidates that are not well-equipped for a job. And I do believe that this has an effect. This has been very sl- um, strongly being done uh, during these elections. And I also think that many states do have an interest to have a really good bench.
2: I'm also wondering myself how the practicalities of the voting is going to work. When I was at an ASP in New York, there were many, many rounds. Uh, to That was the last time that there were six judges elected and you could see the states, uh, as you talked about, kind of maneuvering and getting behind one candidate and so on. And for example, you know, the biggest block with the African states couldn't get behind just one candidate and they they lost out in the end. And I'm just thinking in in these um, pandemic times under COVID-19, how is all that negotiating and maneuvering going to happen? Can you imagine it?
1: Yeah, I think it's more difficult than usual we see that already with uh, the negotiations um on the election of the prosecutor which we're going to talk about um later i think diplomacy works on personal contact talk to people you try to understand their point of view you try to sort out possible avenues of compromise and that's something that um you do face-to-face usually. If you're in a working group with a, on Zoom with 250 people, where you also have rival, rivalries between uh, The Hague and, and, and New York, it's more likely that uh, people just repeat their directives um, from the capital. So I think it's uh, rather difficult um, in the running up um, to the ASP already, and it will be equally difficult during the ASP. But it's something that we need to go through, right, this time?
0: Moving on to that other election we've already, you've already hinted at, it's the election of the prosecutor. Incumbent Fatu Ben Souda has to move on after nine years. And it comes at a time when it's pretty clear that the court is in turmoil. There is critique of her predecessor's work in several cases that fell apart after they got to court. And even though Bensouda has been working really hard to kind of expand uh, investigations beyond Africa and African warlords, for example, by opening uh, cases in uh, investigations in Georgia and Myanmar, still the only people in the U.N. detention or in the ICC detention unit are from Uganda, Congo, Central African Republic, Mali and Sudan at this point. There are Lots of other reasons why the next uh, prosecutor is important and we'll get to them, but let's catch up to where we are in the process.
2: This feels a little bit like uh, inside baseball, as my husband calls it, but I, I think it's really quite important for observers of the court. Back in June, after the states had set up a new procedure, there was a committee to elect the prosecutor who reported back that they'd had nearly 90 applicants. They'd chosen 14 in the end to interview who were all basically vetted, which was a new thing for the ICC, to have the, the candidates vetted, which meant that they checked that their statements were true, and said out of that that four people, rather than six or five or three, that, that was the, the range that they were given, only four people had the competences to become the next prosecutor.
0: And this was a list that caused a lot of surprise uh, by many observers because n- none of the usual suspects uh, were on it. Uh, you might remember we had a chat with Sabine Noka, the chair of the committee, and she was very adamant about the choices they made uh, from the pool of candidates, which she said was not very large, and that this was also the result of the states uh, implementing this new commission because they wanted something new and they got it.
2: And since then, it's been up to the Bureau of the Assemblies of States Parties, which is made up of states, to consult with the states and get consensus, if possible, around one of the candidates. And in the end, a state has to nominate someone um, and then the states have to vote. And Stephanie, you've had some briefings from some European states. What are they saying to you?
0: Well, uh, they say that there are signs that there's not enough consensus behind one of the candidates of the short list and that some of them are lobbying to open up the procedures. Uh, Others are not so much lobbying but more being pragmatic that if people say there is no consensus this should be open, then we should go from the short list to the so-called long list. And we can have a whole discussion that the long list apparently doesn't exist. But what it means is going from only the four people that were on that uh, short list to back to maybe the 10 people that were interviewed.
2: I, on the other hand, have seen material which shows that some other states, some who are members of the uh, the bureau and some who are outside of it, particularly some African states, maybe some other middle-sized states, who are very critical of the way that this discussion seems to have been opened up Again, um, critical of the process that has happened since the four names were announced and are asking essentially whether uh, really the larger states, maybe some European states, have a particular candidate in mind who they're trying to insert into the process. Um, I asked the president of the Assemblies of states parties, Ogon Kwon, if he'd like to comment on this, but he politely declined, saying it wasn't appropriate in the middle of negotiations.
0: In addition to all this, we should also mention there's a lot of pressure from NGOs, including ATLAS, a coalition of women's lawyers, along with Open Society and the Women's Initiative for Gender Justice, who are pushing for more extensive vetting and reputational checks to ensure that candidates do not have any potential allegations of workplace misconduct against them.
2: As so often with these kinds of allegations um, that people are starting to talk and it's even made it into the blogosphere, And we're trying to be incredibly careful uh, to be very factual in our reporting about it as these kind of things kind of blow up without any uh, any substance to them. Um, we'd like probably to refer back to the podcast with Dania Chaykel, among others, talking about how it is essential as part of the advert for the prosecutor, they they stressed that high moral character was was needed. And the committee to elect the prosecutor explicitly said itself that it had no procedure to actually investigate any allegations and it could listen to NGOs, it could listen to interventions from anybody, but it couldn't actually take those into account when making its choice.
0: And so while we're talking about all this and the election process, it's also a good time to mention that we are trying right now to do a series of interviews with the named candidates so far to give them time to answer specific questions in a more conversational style. And if you have anything you'd like us to ask, uh, whether of the current four or maybe any others that get nominated uh, in future, let us know, email us at editors at com or send us a message via Twitter and we will ask them.
2: So Astrid, um, when you survey this... Um sort of discussion that you see going on, partly online and partly between individuals, how do you see the states managing to extricate themselves from what appears to us, at least as journalists, as a bit of a mess in order to to try and agree on a candidate?
1: Mm, It certainly appears so. I have always been a very strong defender of the process uh, that was established, not because I believe that the process was so perfect, because, but rather because I believe that the rule of law is a principle that we should all uphold in general, and in particular when we talk about the election of an organ of an international criminal court. How does the rule of law express itself? It's by setting rules that then are eventually applied. Now, states have established the process that we have, They could have established a different process, nobody forced them to do it the way they did. Um, And now that we have results coming out of this process, um, it seems that a few states are unhappy with the results. And that's the reason why they want to unfold the process. And um, I find this very unfortunate. Of course, we are in a kind of an impasse with uh, four candidates, um, some states and also some commentators. Um, have come forward, but uh, for instance, there's a critique. I think it was one of the first letters uh, that Kenya had sent, sent that there are two candidates on the short list uh, from African countries. That's a rather strange coming from an African state. I would have thought you know that they would start campaigning for um, African candidates, and if you would not want candidates from a certain geographical groups, but you, because you believe that the rotation system it's, uh, is a very important one and should be upheld, then why do the terms of reference um, for the committee say that there should be a ge- geographical balance? So I think a lot um, that we are discussing now has gone wrong in the process of drafting um, the terms of reference. But I still kind of feel, well, we do have four candidates that the committee thinks were the strongest candidates. It's difficult to get to a compromise also because of the setting. Certainly it would be easier if we had um, the fixed date of the Assembly of States parties and states were forced to be there and come up with a compromise. This delaying of deadlines, I think, is also not very helpful. And then in the end, if there's no consensus, I'm also not completely against just going for a vote. I mean, what does the Rome Statute say? You need to have an absolute majority on one of the candidates. I think if states opt to open the list and add candidates from the long list, I still think it's not um, the greatest solution. It's still unfortunate that we are not sticking to the process that states uh, decided. But if we do that, at least there must be some kind of damage control, which means that states cannot go further or should not go further than the candidates that are actually on the long list. It means that we cannot have other candidates now coming in at such a late uh, point in time. Of course, we need to have the consent of the uh, persons uh, that are on the long list, um, that their names are being um, uh, publicized. The candidates on on the short list, of course, need to remain in play because they were the ones that were um, selected uh, by, by the committee. And also the I would say that the candidates on the long list that still are willing to run for the the job, they also need to undergo the same process of public hearings that the other candidates have also gone through to at least adjust the process as much as possible to the one that we had for those candidates uh, that are being shortlisted.
2: So you'd argue really for some kind of um, equal process if uh, if more candidates are added in to consideration.
1: Yes, so limit it to candidates that are already on the long list and then have um, an equal uh, process for those persons um, that are are running.
0: Isn't it incredibly damaging for all candidates, both people who are on the short list that are considered apparently kind of not good enough, so the list had to open, and then you have an open list with people where now... Everybody knows they weren't chosen for the short list and everybody's arguing for the reasons for that to be made public. So it seems to be that they are all damaged in some way by changing this process. How to get out of that?
1: Absolutely. So I think there will be a damage. Uh, And if it's being done, I hope that the states, um, the Assembly, the Bureau, find a convincing reason why to do that. And then work on the basis of damage control. But I do think there is an adverse effect um, to the whole election that uh, states um, would not stick to the process that they have put up. So then
0: the best we can hope for is that everybody is kind of equally damaged and that, and that, uh, and that equalizes the field?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't say equally damaged. But... It is some, of course, a kind of a disrespect for those candidates that have been uh, put on the short list. And as you clearly said, we don't know the reasons why some of the candidates were not put um, on the short list. And in particular, because there could have been two more candidates. Um, so it's not that um, the committee would have not have been allowed to add more candidates. So we also need to wonder whether this may affect the willingness of some persons to uh, continue being in the race.
0: So Astrid, uh, one of the things that Nolke said is that there were so few, uh, that she had such a small pool to fish from, from the candidates. Are there really so few
1: suitable candidates around? I don't know. I think they had around 80, was it, applications, and they draw up a short list of originally 16 uh, candidates that then reduced uh, to 14. I don't know, it's quite a pool to fish from, 14, isn't it? I mean, it is a difficult job. It's a very high-profile job. Um, it's a job where you also need to consider whether you're willing to do it because you're in the public and you will always be criticised very harshly, independent of what decision you take, because it's a job where certainly you can never do it right for everybody. There are too many diverse interests uh, at stake.
2: Let's say one of the critiques that um, uh, any new prosecutor is going to have to deal with will be the potential U.S. sanctions um, against them. Um, we're going to go into that in a little bit more detail in in a moment. But I'm I'm certainly wondering myself if I was a potential candidate and I recognised that this that any action I had could potentially bring down the weight of the United States government in putting sanctions against me. I wonder whether
1: I'd still want to stand. Yes. I um, guess we might lose some candidates also because of, of, of that. But I think it's not a bad thing. I mean, prosecutors need to know what uh, or potential prosecutors need to know what difficulties, what challenges they're going to face. And need, they need to decide for themselves whether they are willing to take them. And I think we can not blame anybody for taking a personal decisions of not being wanted to be targeted uh, by sanctions. And we should applaud those who uh, still do it including the present prosecutor.
2: Well, let's have a look um, a little bit more detail at that. Uh, Last part of the uh, podcast, we've made it uh, nearly to the end. Give it a bit of context. The United States, which is not a court member, has said that it thinks that the ICC is out of control and should not and must not suggest that an American Of any kind of citizen, whether military or civilian, could be held accountable at the court for their actions in relation to the situation in Afghanistan, which is a court member. And therefore, some of the actions of anybody who has been on the territory of Afghanistan could be looked into by the court. Kind of alleged crimes that are in the uh, prosecutor's reports on Afghanistan, which uh, led her to ask for an investigation, are... alleged crimes to do with torture at uh, CIA so-called black sites where people were renditioned out of Afghanistan into Guantanamo for alleged terrorist offences.
0: And we've talked previously about the prospect of sanctions with former U.S. war crimes Deputy Ambassador Beth van Schaak. But now they are real. And this week we had a kind of unprecedented look in what it means when Fatou Bensouda, the prosecutor, spoke in Dutch Parliament. She uh, spoke some, to some extent to what it meant for her personally that she couldn't uh, transfer money to family members, that she had her credit card taken away. But she also spoke a bit about what it means in her work as prosecutor.
5: When it comes to the practical day-to-day work, we're having difficulties in the sense that first and foremost, uh, we had um, problems with our American colleagues. We have a few Americans in my staff who, because of the executive order, I cannot um, task them directly. I cannot be seen as supervising their work. They have to report to the deputy prosecutor, and that also I cannot task them directly. So already this is a problem. Because again, I feel that it's stopping me from doing my work as I should.
0: Well, she talks there about uh, doing her work as she should, but this weekend she was showing that she certainly isn't trying to let it stop her from doing her work because she's on a visit to Sudan to talk about cooperation, which is a big step for her. It was the first ever referral from the UN Security Council to the court, to the Darfur situation. It's the first non-state party investigation by the court, the first ever genocide charge. And for many, many years, Sudan in its previous regime would not allow any ICC personnel or investigators into the country. So this trip is really a way of showing that the sanctions cannot keep the prosecution down. And photos also show Pakiso Moko Chocho, the head of international cooperation for her office, also named under the U.S. sanction, with her talking to these Sudanese officials. So it's, a, it's an obvious show of, that this show goes on regardless of the sanctions.
2: Uh, these sanctions have now got uh, a bit of a response. Um, the United States based uh, NGO Open Society and uh, some US academics have joined together in a suit to challenge these sanctions in federal court, uh, called up James Goldstone, the head of Open Society Justice Initiative to tell us a bit more.
6: Politically, this order and the designations of the prosecutor and the uh, and the head of the JCCD division of the Office of the Prosecutor that have followed, um, send a dangerous signal that um, is unfortunately consistent with the thrust of uh, much foreign policy under this administration, which is a rejection of international institutions, a demonization of uh, the notion of the rule of law at the global level. and a virulent uh resistance to any notion of accountability for u.s uh, action
2: i'm trying to find a way of um describing this for myself is it is it chilling or is it freezing or is it sort of uh sort of guillotining of i mean how dramatic do you think i should be in how i describe this
6: it is halting um immediately in activity because of the fear uh, that a vaguely and overbroad-worded statute could apply to and cover those activities. But it is actually operating as a guillotine, as you suggest, because it is simply shut. Many people feel like they have to just shut down activities immediately. Um, you know, Being designated under, under, the, uh, under the statute could subject you um, to essentially um, draconian uh, economic deprivation, the inability to undertake normal, routine financial and bank transactions in the U.S. dollar. So I think, I think practically this is something that cannot be allowed to stand, um, which is precisely why we decided um, we had to go to court.
2: Tell me more about going to court. What, what does that mean? Initially,
6: actually, we, um, we uh, tried to use um, Freedom of Information Act provisions to uh, obtain further information about what underlay the order and, uh, and to gain further information from the relevant uh, federal agencies. Um, about how the order would be interpreted, given how broadly worded it is, um, to try to find out how it would be applied. But we were unsuccessful. We haven't as yet received uh, any really substantive um, response to those requests. And so we felt, uh, given the, the uh, draconian effects and the chilling effect that we've discussed, it was imperative that we bring a legal challenge. Uh, and, the, and the goal of this really is, um, uh, is to try to persuade a federal court uh, that would have jurisdiction over this uh, over this action by the administration to enjoin enforcement uh, of the executive order and to order the administration that they cannot enforce the order on, on three essential grounds. One on the grounds that... Um, it is, uh, it is a breach of the, uh, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, which protects freedom of speech and freedom of association. Secondly, um, our argument is that this is a breach of the Fifth Amendment guarantee of due process, and that the fact that the order is so vaguely worded doesn't give adequate notice uh, of what is prescribed and who is prescribed for undertaking which activities. And then finally, um, uh, we argue that the, the, the order is. Uh, is ultra virus um, because it it allows uh, the administration purportedly um, to undertake prohibitions which include information and informational materials, which uh, an amendment to the statute that governs the order specifically protects.
2: Is there a sense that you have that, you know, that the, the sanctions against the prosecutor and one of her senior staff now will have an effect on other things that are going on at the court, kind of the internal future of the
6: court? I think this, this extraordinary uh, order and, and, and sanction um, does cast a shadow uh, over the court as a whole. Um, I don't think anyone who comes into a senior position in that court could possibly ignore the threat that is posed by uh, by this order.
2: Astrid, just a first direct question. Are these sanctions of you as an academic, organising things, making things happen, which might relate to the ICC? Are you feeling any effect
1: of these sanctions in your work? Not in the moment. I'm obviously not one of the persons uh, listed. Um, and our, all our activity a little bit um, taken back because of uh, the pandemic, um so maybe we would face some difficulties if we wanted um invite certain persons um that i don't know but at the moment no i'm i'm not i'm not personally affected by the by the sanctions
0: do you do you think the sanctions will affect some of the issues we talked about uh, the elections uh, for the prosecutor for the judges and the need for states to reform after the uh, independent experts report uh we talked already about maybe people uh, on the long list for the prosecutor might not want to continue now that they've seen the full effect of these sanctions. Do you see other ways that, that these sanctions could influence the processes at the
1: court? What maybe could be discussed between the court and states' parties is whether any adverse effects of, um, of um staff members of the court might be mitigated in uh, some way. And I'm talking about um, financial help, for instance, if assets are frozen. Um, I do believe that there's a lot going on in the Netherlands um, and uh, discussions with banks to relieve uh, the personal situations of the two persons that are currently listed. Um, but I don't think that this is necessarily something that uh, would go into the review, uh, independent review process.
0: Fatou Bensoud indeed spoke in Parliament of the Dutch uh, efforts to help her and that the Dutch government had been hugely helpful in trying to uh, mitigate the effects of the sanctions on her and ensure that she could continue banking and all those kind of insurance things, all those things linked to sanctions. Uh, One of the things I've heard very much in a kind of gossip and on background way is that some states may be lobbying for people... um, not on the short list, but on the long list, they have a favorite candidate and they, and part of the argument for that candidate is also that he has experience dealing with the U S and has good relations with the U S, which would be good for the court at this time. So those are also things that are being, um, I guess it's being used for the politicking in a way, but that's another, um, whether that will have any effect we will see, but obviously, uh, the argument of a court in turmoil needs a strong prosecutor will be maybe used by all sides. There could also be sides that say a court in turmoil should have a very clear and transparent election so that it can't be accused of being political. You can kind of see it from both sides. But I find it hard that it probably won't, uh, hard to believe that this won't come up in in some discussions. What do you think?
1: No, I, I think that we need a strong prosecutor in any case. I don't know whether there are persons on the long list that are particularly strong. Um, But the strength, even if we are dealing with the candidates that are on the short list, I think strength and being able to oppose diplomatic pressure is part of the job description.
2: I'm wondering about the bigger effects on the whole way that the court operates. I mean, the court is part of a big international system, uh, of course, it's independent from it to some degree, but it has a relationship with the UN Security Council. It has uh, uh, relationships with, um, you know, positively and negatively with all kinds of states around the world. I, I, I'm just, I'm really confused. I must say personally about how the court can really operate when sanctions like this come down heavily, even if it's only on one or two individuals. It's, it's it has an incredible effect on the whole of the court,
1: doesn't it? It does, in a way. Um, although the court, as such, could be the target of sanctions, and at least so far, one could say, say it's not. Uh, it's limited to individuals. So I think maybe the effect, at the moment, at least is limited. That doesn't mean that it has a huge effect on the personal life of those persons, that it has a reputational effect um, for the whole court because uh, sometimes we do not um, in in public um, properly distinguish between the person, in particular the prosecutor, um, and the court um, as such. So certainly there are effects. I'm wondering whether the court would be um, hampered in exercising its functions uh, unless the court, as such, is the target of sanctions,
2: I think that there will be some NGOs who would suggest that the bigger picture of the court, which includes how civil society uh, interacts uh, with it, um, how they can conduct their work on the grounds um, in terms of supporting victims, etc., that, that 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 the bigger stuff will also be. Be impacted. So I hope you're right that it's that it's a little bit limited in that sense. But but I'm certainly getting the impression from others that they they perceive this as having a very wide effect on the work of the court.
1: I think that the lawsuit uh, that was mentioned earlier is um, tremendously important. But I think it will have a very important effect to clarify some of the provisions of the executive order because if I read it plainly, but I'm not an expert in US law, I would think that every single person that um, can be targeted must be listed first. And I do not read the executive order in a way that who is helping or aiding a listed person may then automatically become um, um, a, a, a target of sanctions. But um, this seems to be not very clear. And of course, people are also living with the threat of becoming um, a target. So I think this was, this is a hugely important uh, move to get some clarifications or even an announcement that maybe um, the executive order is too vague um, and uh, therefore um, uh, cannot be applied.
2: That was all a bit of a marathon of all of the uh, issues uh, surrounding, no, at least some of the issues, the biggest issues surrounding the ICC at the moment. Is there anything that we've left out, Astrid, or that we,
1: uh, that we should have covered? No, I think we are fine. Let's hope there will be an ASB in uh, one way or the other, um, and that uh, some of the important uh, decisions that are due will be, um, will be taken.
0: Thank you very much for keeping us up to date. Again, we are trying to talk to all of the prosecutorial candidates. So send any questions you have in via a Twitter account at uh, asymmetricalh or email us at editors at asymmetricalhaircuts.com. You can also record a little audio file so we can actually play your question if you want to do. If you want to get fancy, and uh, thank you very much, Astrid, for your time uh, on this Sunday to kind of keep us all abreast of everything that's happening.
1: Well, thank you. It
0: was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
2: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com. And the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.